You are listening to audio from Citizens Church, Elmira. You can find more resources and learn more about our church at citizensalmira.ca. Well, if you have a Bible, please turn to Mark chapter 2. The passage we just read, we're going to look at in more detail. But I wanted to give you the kind of the big idea right from the outset for this message. And it's this, that your life and my life can be changed by coming face-to-face with Jesus. Our lives can actually be changed by coming face-to-face with Jesus. Now, a statement like that, um, for me at least, makes me think of seeing Jesus face-to-face, you know? And like literally, what would it be like to have that experience? And um, I'm a pastor, so I've had different opportunities where people have kind of come to me um, seeking answers um, or even just to prove that Jesus existed or was real in any way. And so uh, I can remember one time when I was new on staff at Woodside, and I must have been one of the only people in the office because there was a a call that came through to... um, Carol, who was running the phones, and she forwarded it to me, and she basically said, there's someone here who has, like, a theological question for you. I was like, okay, I'm supposed to have the answer to this. I don't know, I'm supposed to stand by my library with, you know, my dictionaries and all that stuff, but they kind of came through on the phone line, and uh, they asked right away, who is Jesus? And can I prove that he was actually God? Did I think that he was God? And so, I was, at first, I, I, I will say, I was kind of taken aback a little bit. I was kind of like, okay, well, let's introduce ourselves a little bit. Um, who are you? <laughs> let's get to know each other a little bit. But this person was in no mood for, like, relationship building. Okay, it was like straight back to the question. Do you think that Jesus is God? Like, get a verse that says that and that will prove that. And I was like, okay, I know there's not actually a verse that just explicitly says that. So I'm like, again, I'm trying like relationship building, bridge building. And I'm like, okay, how about we go to John chapter 1. I'm trying to take them to places where they can actually see this. And the end of the conversation was, you're a pastor and you can't even tell me whether or not Jesus was really God. And then it was like, click. That was the end of the call. I was like, okay, we're not here for making friends necessarily, right? And I was maybe not even the greatest at like on-the-spot apologetics. And I don't know if you've ever had that experience where maybe it's been someone else or maybe it's been even you, like an internal battle. Like, show me that Jesus is really who he says he is. And Christians have had this, um, I don't know if it's a problem, but have had this reality for all of time where people have asked the question, like, you follow Jesus, But how are we to make sense of this? Like, is he a real person? Is he a reality? Is he who he says he was? Uh, You know, what is it about Jesus? And even all the way, you can look back in the book of Acts and see that, like, people didn't know really how to categorize fresh, new followers of Jesus. In Acts 11, it talks about the believers being in Antioch, kind of growing, and the people in Antioch didn't know what to do with them, so they just called them Christians. That's what it says in Acts 11. That's the first time they called them Christians, which basically means people of the, of the household of Christ. And they're trying to give them some sort of category. Here's these new, these, you know, Hellenistic 
Roman or Greek, Gentiles, also some Jewish people suddenly following this guy named Jesus. And we don't really know where to categorize you, and so we're just going to call you Christians. And that's kind of been the calling card of believers ever since. It's like, here are people, us included now in this room, who follow Jesus. And we come to look over and over and over again at Jesus. And we say that Jesus is our Lord and that we worship him and that he's God. And we live in a world that says, prove it. Like, show that to me. How do you actually know that for real? And so we're coming actually to the Gospel of Mark to help do that for for us as believers. To look again and again at Jesus and what he did. And that's why we come to the Gospel of Mark and we're spending weeks in the Gospel of Mark to ask this question, who is Jesus? And who did Jesus say he was? And what was his life even like? And how did that experience go as people interacted with him? And so in in the second chapter of Mark, we see that Christ again is back in his ministry. So You'll remember from last week or the week before, if you were here, we talked about how Jesus was doing miracles and he was healing people and then he would um, step back and he would go to a desolate place or he would take time to pray and he would kind of, you know, strengthen himself in the Lord again and then he would move out again into ministry. And here we are coming again in chapter 2 to Jesus doing his work and interacting with people back in Capernaum again. And we're just going to look at three things in the message this morning as we kind of delve into this idea of seeing Jesus face to face and being changed by Jesus when we actually do that. We're going to look at what it, what it means to come to Jesus. Then we're going to look at what it means to actually be face to face with Jesus. And then finally, what it means to be changed by Jesus. And we're going to see it happen in this story here with the paralytic. This is a amazing time where Christ does something totally unique. He is incarnate. So he is, and we think about this a lot at Christmas, right? Where he becomes flesh. He was a man who lived in, in the first century. And so he was actually limited. He limited himself to time and space and to one particular place on any given day, something that God, you know, does not even understand, but Jesus actually did that. And here we see him in verses 1 through 4, coming and interacting with this crowd that is um, wanting to see him and hear him and experience him. And so let's look at verses 1 through 4 again to get the picture and get the, get the context for what's, what's happening here. In verse 1, it says this, And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together, so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. So again, we read this in chapter 1, that man, wherever he was going, the crowds were just like gathering. And now he's in this home. You can kind of picture it in your mind's eye. This, probably this square, ancient, first century home. And he's in there, and it is totally crowded full. Verse 3 says this, And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. 
And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. Here we see actually an example of people coming to Jesus. And that's what this story is really all about. It's a little glimpse into, you know, this, on any given day, this specific day, where people are coming to Jesus, and they're coming to him, the room is so full that the paralytic has no way to actually get in to be close to Jesus. And coming to Jesus actually comes with a lot of, I don't know if baggage is the right word, but it come, we bring with us, just like the paralytic, we bring with us our own kind of issues and background and good and bad when it, when it comes to coming close to Jesus. I just noted down four things that can often happen when we come to Jesus that we see even in the text here, okay? And the first one is this. When we come to Jesus, we come with obstacles. And maybe the, the most obvious one here in the text is the physical barriers. For the paralytic, it was this barrier of not even being able to get into the room with Jesus, right? He was physically distanced and he couldn't get close um, because the crowd was in there. And so there was a, a physical barrier between him getting close to Jesus. And I don't know if you've ever experienced that, but there are people around us, even, even in a town like Elmira, who experience barriers, sometimes physical barriers to getting close to Jesus. And I mean, I don't think about it often, and, and I'm guessing most of us don't as well, because we have so much. You know, we have vehicles, we've got, um, we've got even like Bibles in our hands, we've got devices, ways to, to get close to Christ spiritually now. But there are people, even in our communities around us, who there's physical barriers still that hinder them from coming to Christ. And one time when this really became apparent to me was when I was, we used to live up in Durham, and there was one year where we were helping uh, bring food baskets. It was Christmas time, and so we would bring them to people's homes, big box, groceries, turkey, all this kind of stuff. And there were homes in the town that I lived in, in this little town of Durham, that I went into with these food baskets where I could not believe the level of poverty that existed right in those apartments. I had no idea that they were there. Like these were apartments in, in the downtown or homes out in the countryside that I had like driven by and going into their physical space, I could actually see that there was a level of poverty that, that inhibited them from actually accessing things that I'm just so used to accessing. I just have no trouble doing them because of my place even in society and all that I have. Physical barriers exist around us. They might not exist for us, but they still exist for people to actually access. And that's not even thinking globally, right? I'm just thinking locally here, but globally even, the, the barriers that people face to coming to Christ. And this paralytic as well faced this physical barrier of just the fullness of the room, but also his own paralysis and his own ability to actually physically enter in to get close to Jesus. If he had been walking, he maybe could have been like that super rude person and just like trounce his way right to the front and just, you know, sit down right in front of Jesus. But he can't even do that. There's this physical barrier. But there's also obstacles of culture. And I'm guessing that that's what most of us face. 
the barrier of culture and following Christ, that would have been a barrier for the first century people as well as they came closer to Jesus. There would have been some like, man, should I be following this new teacher? Should I follow the way that he's teaching his life? And for us as well, there can be a cost in the Canadian society in kind of post-modern, post-enlightenment, post-everything to following someone who has exclusive claims like Jesus. The cultural cost is real. And I know for, for some of you in your workplaces, if you said that you're a Christian or if you're a follower of Jesus, man, that could come with some serious ramifications. People would maybe think totally different about you. They may include you or not include you. And so the cultural cost and the cultural obstacle is real. So coming to Jesus comes with obstacles, but secondly, it also comes with motives. And, and we all come with motives to Jesus. And the paralytic also came with his motivation. Now, it doesn't actually say that he wanted to be healed. Nowhere in the text does it say that he came wanting to be healed. The assumption is that he probably did. He probably had heard the news that, you know, Jesus had healed all kinds of people, and he's like, man, this is my opportunity now. Just get close to this guy. He may do something miraculous for me. And many of us as well came to Christ or still come to Christ with a wish list, with like hopes and dreams. And for many of us, it's, it's pretty basic. It's just like, just like keep my life kind of basically free from major difficult things. You know, just kind of keep it smooth. I can handle like a few bumps in the road. I'm good with that. A little bit of suffering. I know the Bible talks a little bit about suffering, so I can take some of that. But just none of the like big stuff. Keep that for other people so I can pray for them. I can intercede for them. I can do that role. But the big hard stuff, man, I can't handle that. I don't want that. And so here we come to Christ and often we actually want our motive is actually that we want stuff from Christ rather than just coming to him. And I've been reminded as I've been reading through uh, the Old Testament and specifically reading about uh, the Exodus and Israel leaving and how they, you know, they left Egypt and they had all these miraculous things and God just provided for them. And it says, as they were leaving, the Egyptians were like, here, take my gold. You know, it was like, God was like, I'm going to give you everything. I'm going to give you freedom and I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you everything as you walk out the door. And then you can read in the story how like six weeks later, out in the desert, they're like, why did you bring us here? We should be just dead we, life was so good back in Egypt. If only we could go back there and eat the, the, the leek soup that we had, right? They're just, they're yearning for soup. That's on their wish list. And they're like, God, we don't even want you anymore. We want soup. And I was reminded how that's often me. I, my motive in coming to Christ is often my wish list. It's keeping my life, you know, as clean as possible. So it comes with motives. It comes with obstacles. But it also, here in the text itself, we see that it comes with faith. So any one of us, when we come to Christ, it comes with a certain element 
of faith. And Hebrews 11.1 1 says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And you can see it even here in the story how the paralytic and his friends, they actually had like a plan. And I don't know how much they believed in. I don't know how much faith they had. But there was enough faith, like a mustard seed of faith, to just say, we're going to try this. We're just going to like get him close to Jesus. That's all we're going to do. Now, it did require like breaking someone's home. So that's a pretty significant step, right? It destroyed somebody's roof. But somebody had an idea. Somebody had a little bit of faith, and that's all it took when they came close to to Jesus. A little bit of faith. The last thing that I was thinking of, and these are just four things. There's there's many others, but directly connected to this text. The last one is that coming to Jesus also comes with weakness. And in the story here, it's super clear because the paralytic he can't walk so there's this like physical weakness that is just clear in the story as you read it but it's probably the one that i dislike the most and i'm guessing most of us in here do as well we don't like the idea of weakness we don't like the idea of coming to god in weakness And I was thinking back when I was thinking of this idea of weakness, and I was thinking about about back when my kids were young toddlers just walking around, and we used to, like, do stuff out in the garden. You know, I would, like, move rocks around maybe, or I would move plants around or or dig a hole. And the kids would often come. I can still remember this at at different points. And they would want to help, okay? And you know this as parents, help right? They want to help. They want to do something. And most of the time, they thought they could do it, okay? So let's say you're moving a little rock that's about this big. For an adult, not a big deal. Pick it up. But your little toddler comes up, and what do they say? I can do it. And they're coming. They grab this thing, and they can't budge it. Or maybe what often happens, they'll like pick it up, and they'll drop it on their toe or something, right? And they'll hurt themselves in the process, We're like that often. We think we can do it. We think that we don't actually have weakness. We think that we're actually stronger than we are. And so we see a situation. We see something. We even come to Christ and we say, here I am in all my strength. And what we find out when it comes to the kingdom of God and when it comes to coming to Jesus Weakness is actually the way that we're called to be. Weakness is actually the road that we're called to embrace. Strength, capability, is the thing that we are nurtured in in our society. But the way of Christ is actually a way of weakness, and it's a way of brokenness. And so we come with, maybe you can identify with some of these four things, or maybe you can't, but one thing we can see is that the paralytic here is actually doing what Jesus calls us to do. He's coming to Christ. And in Matthew chapter 11, if you have a Bible, just turn over a few pages. Matthew chapter 11, starting in verse 27, it says this, All things have been handed over to me by my Father. So this is Jesus speaking. 
And no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. And then verse 28. So verse 27 is really, is like Jesus kind of setting the plane, saying, I have all authority. So you're thinking after, after verse 27 could be the opportunity where Jesus would just lay it down. He says, I am God, I have all authority, here's what you need to do. Boom, and he lays it down, like a new Ten Commandments or something. But what does he say? Verse 28, he says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The paralytic is doing what we are called to do by Jesus himself. Jesus says, here's the calling. Are you feeling the weight? Are you feeling like the good and the bad of what it means to come to Jesus? What you need to understand is the calling is to come. And when you come, you discover who Jesus is. He's actually gentle and he's lowly. And you find when you're close to him, you actually experience rest. Now for many of us, at different points in our Christian life, that has not been our experience. We've actually experienced the, you know, the heavy laden, the labor, a yoke that is heavy. But Jesus says, here's the calling. The calling is for you to come to me and experience rest when you get close to me. So the paralytic is working at coming to Jesus and he actually gets to him, gets right into him and he comes, and this is the second point here, he comes face to face with Jesus. So let's look at verse 5, back in Mark again. Chapter 2, verse 5. says this, And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is, a, he is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Martin Luther once uh, said in, in a broader quotation, but he said this one small little phrase, hunger is the best cook. And I don't know if you've ever experienced that before. Hopefully not yet. It's, it's only 9.45, right? But hunger is the best cook. Like when your body is hungry, it actually starts telling you, you're, you know, there's like little gurgles that go on here and, and maybe even you start thinking about lunch and this happens to some people, sometimes it happens to me, you start thinking about lunch and your mouth starts watering. There's like a desire within you that starts to grow for this meal or for this snack or for coffee or whatever it is. And this is the state that the paralytic is actually coming to Jesus in. He's coming actually prepared. Now it's, it's, not, uh, it's not even totally clear what he's coming prepared for, but he's coming actually ready to receive something from Jesus. Again, maybe it was the healing. Maybe it was just getting close to this person who is a, a new rabbi with teaching or maybe a, a healer, but it was some sort of preparation. And so here we see he comes face to face with Jesus. And I don't know about you, but I've thought before in my mind, and I've talked to people before in my mind who have, who have just wished that, you know, 
if we could just see Jesus face to face, or if we could just, you know, in, in the things that we do in church, if we could just focus on Jesus alone, then, like, it'd be happy. You know, he's just, he's a nice guy. He's just totally loving. He's, he's just great. We just want to see him face to face. But when you read the Gospels, and when you read the totality of Scripture, what you see is that Jesus is actually, he's amazingly nice, and I think if he would have walked in, we all would have wanted to be around him. He'd just be like captivating. But he's also um, abrupt. He can also be awkward at times. He can be insulting to people. You know, he can be that person Maybe you've met that person before who says like really awkward things in a group. Or maybe that's you. <laughs> You're just like, you just said that? I can't believe you just said that, you know? And there's times when we follow the narrative where the disciples are like, oh, Jesus, that's, you shouldn't say that, you know? He says things that are totally awkward and difficult. But then also at times, we get glimpses of Jesus who is powerful and is almost almost terrifying in a way so if you think of Matthew 17 and you think of the transfiguration where Jesus for just for a moment he kind of lays aside his earthly human veil and there's just like full glory and the disciples are down on their feet and they are down on their faces and they can hardly take seeing like the fullness of the glory of Christ. And you can see glimpses of it in Revelation where Jesus is pictured as this, this king on a horse riding with like a sword and his, his clothes are dripping in blood and he's got a big old tattoo down the side of his leg. That is also Jesus. And this is part of the challenge. When we come here to this text, we see that suddenly in this space, in this little home, in this living room, two groups of people come face to face with Jesus. One group is a group that is coming in faith and in expectation. The paralytic is one of those. Other people in the audience are some of those as well who have very little to lose. They're probably like commoner kind of people, but they are coming near to Jesus and they're just drawn in by the excitement of it, of just being close to him. But then sitting in the very same room, right there before him, are people who are opposed to Jesus. The religious leaders. Now listen, they're just doing their job, right? They are just, there's a new teacher, there's a new rabbi. Part of what their role is, is to figure out you know, is this guy legitimate? Is he telling the truth? Who is this teacher? And here they stand now in opposition. You can almost picture them sitting there like this, right? With their arms crossed, analyzing every word that Jesus says. And Jesus actually knows exactly what's going on in their minds. So you've got these two groups. And one little word of warning to all of us is... It's a picture, actually, that, that we should absorb in, that you can actually come to be in the presence of Jesus, but not really want Jesus. So you can come to a church. You can come to missional family. 
You can come to like a Bible study or any of these things and you can be like sitting down, taking it in, and you can actually not want Jesus. And so here we have in the story these two groups right before Jesus and he is is drawing them in for totally different reasons. So which group are you? Don't answer. Which group are you? When it comes to facing Jesus, and I would think, or we should all be answering that it's both of them. On any given day, it's both of them. There may be some days where we're more like coming to Jesus in honest authenticity and wanting him. And then there's other days where we come to Jesus and we're like in opposition to what he stands for. We're like confused. We're listening. We're trying to weigh, is this like a reality or not? And that can happen even within the same hour, right, when we're honest. We come to Jesus and we often play both of them. But part of the reason why we gather as believers, why we come together, part of the reason why we even have the gospel of Mark is to remind ourselves that we want to be drawn to Jesus for the right reasons. We want Jesus to pull us in. We want to follow him. Because we live in a world that wants to divide our thinking and push us away from the reality of Christ. And so the Gospel of Mark was recorded for first century believers. So picture, this is what their day would have looked like. I'm going to go to church. So I walk out my house. And I'm going to walk to where there's a gathering of other believers. And as I walk in this first century Roman town, I'm going to pass like a temple where there's prostitutes out there sitting, kind of wooing me in. Hey, come join us. I'm going to walk through a market where there's going to be murals on the wall that depict all kinds of things about Roman culture. There may even be in the market someone standing like a herald saying, hey, worship Caesar. He's God. All my neighbors are kind of sitting there selling their wares and they're chatting and they're living in the Roman world and I'm going to go to gather with God's people. And so their world is like our world. We also live in a world where we have all kinds of like messages and all kinds of things that communicate to us. I don't know if you remember this movie, remember this old movie, uh, Minority Report, came out like in the early 2000s. It was like this future world where they would, and this was like before we had smartphones and before the internet was like a big thing. It was just kind of like a baby little thing on the side. And in the movie, they would like capture your iris and they would see who you are. And so then you'd like walk down a street and it would be like, Darcy, we've got new uh, whatever the product is, you know. And we're like living in that world now, right? Where the world, is, it's our browsers are being tailored to who we are. And the, the message of the world is constantly at us, constantly forming us. And so Romans 12 verses 1 and 2 remind us that God's calling for us is actually not to be conformed by the world, but to be conformed by him and be conformed by Christ as we come close to him and face to face with him. So in this series, we have been and will continue to talk a lot about the basic practices of prayer and of scripture and of community, these things that we need. Because if you're thinking that like 30, a 30 minute message where you're like with me for like maybe 40% of it, that's like a win, right? 40% of the message. If you're thinking that's going to be enough to kind of carry the day for you as a believer, I got a word for you. It's not going to work. 
is not going to be enough. The wave of conforming to other things is way too big for you to handle. It's way too big for me to handle. And so we are called as believers to face Jesus despite our opposition and our love and to do it together, conformed into the image of Christ through scripture, prayer, and through community. So we come to Jesus. We are face to face with Jesus and finally changed by Jesus. Look at verse 8. Actually, let me read just verse 5 again. And then we'll go to verse 8. Verse 5 says this, And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. And then in verse 8, And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take your bed, and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose immediately and picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. So Jesus here, he kind of, he takes a twist here. Everybody's expecting him to just heal the paralytic. Like that's what he was hoping for and that's what everybody's used to. But Jesus actually starts with, your sins are forgiven. Kind of a twist. And they're like, and the religious leaders instantly know like, okay, that is not a normal statement. That is not a normal statement. That's why Jesus later asks, like what's easier, to, to tell someone their sins are forgiven or to heal them? It's a great question, right? Like, which one is easier? And so what is Jesus doing here by forgiving the paralytic sin first? Well, as I was looking through commentaries, there's four reasons that I came across that he would do this. And I'll just list them here out quickly. The first is that his sickness may have actually been causing the illness, okay? It's possible that his some sin in his life or something that was happening or even, um, you know, his mental health was actually causing him to not be able to walk, okay? So that's a real potential. There's, you know, examples of that happening in our real world still today. And so maybe it was just that. Or the second one is this, that there was, in the first century Jewish mind, there was a correlation between sin and sickness, okay? There was this idea that the two came together. And so if you'll remember the story in John 9 where a blind man comes to Jesus, the first question the disciples ask of Jesus is, okay, Jesus, who sinned? Like, what's the source here? There must have been some sort of sin in this blind man's life because they're thinking in the Jewish mindset, sickness, sin, they go together. And so maybe Jesus is like tackling the sin issue because he knows that it's actually connected to the physical paralysis. Maybe it's the third one, that Jesus wanted to trap the religious leaders. Okay, so he's, you're going to see for the rest of the gospel, he's always in this back and forth battle. And so maybe Jesus was just like, okay, I'm going to mess with them a little bit here. And so he starts with the sin issue, knowing that he's going to tackle the paralytic issue after. And that's a possibility because there's this back and forth that continually happens. 
But then there's the fourth one, and this is the one that I think is actually the point. And it's that there is a more urgent problem here. Though the paralysis seems like the, the real issue, like that seems like the, the one that everybody's looking at saying that's the real problem. Jesus is saying there's actually a greater problem. There's a, there's a sequence here. There's something that's more important. And what's more important is actually his sin. And the, the way that that sin separates him from God and a, from a relationship with God. And there's a few reasons why the sin issue is more important. Firstly, it's, a, it's an eternal issue, okay? So his, his paralysis is very much like a problem of the day, and it's a real problem. And Jesus ultimately heals him because he's concerned about the real problem of the day, but he wants to highlight the more urgent problem, which is the sin problem, which is an eternal one, which goes way after the body is gone. So all of us have a certain amount of time that we live here, and and yet our lives will not end once our physical body is gone. It is eternal. And so Jesus is actually thinking about the eternal. It's also more an issue of security, right? So the paralytic could be healed, and he does get healed, and he could like three weeks later could break his leg, And he can't walk again. And so Jesus is like, there's actually a problem that is greater than just your physical problem. Because that could be another problem again in two months, two years, 20 years. But lastly, the reason why it's a greater and it's a more pressing issue is because there is actually a deeper joy that is to be experienced. There's something greater than even physical healing. There's something greater. I know for those of, those of you who maybe are going through a really difficult season, there might be something that is really hard, something that's bringing confusion into your life. And you might be thinking, just, Lord, my prayer request is if you could take that thing out of my life, then I know I'm just going to be so much more happier. Like the greatest answer to that request is, Lord, take that difficulty away from me. And then I'm just going to be happier. I'm going to be more content. I'll probably read my Bible more. Like there's just way more perks, God. But what we discover is actually that the greatest and, and the deeper joy is actually in our relationship with God. In Luke chapter 2, When Jesus is coming as a little baby, the angels say this, The angel said to them, to the shepherds, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Good news of great joy. And what's that news? That the Savior has come. So Jesus here is showing his cards to the religious leaders. And this is actually, right in chapter 2, this is where he seals his fate to the cross. Because he says, I'm not just able to heal this paralytic. I'm able to forgive his sins. I am God. I have come to fulfill all the promises that have been said before in the Old Testament. N.T. Wright puts it this way, God really has become king 
in and through Jesus, a new state of affairs has been brought into existence. A door has been opened that nobody can shut. Jesus is now the world's rightful Lord, and all other lords are to fall at his feet. So, in conclusion, we'll, we'll just end with this. Um, sometimes you can leave a message, any message really, not just this message, but any message, thinking like, okay, I... I know what to do now. Or maybe feeling like more duty has been put on you. Or like that it should be super easy. And I was thinking, it's almost like a, you've, have you ever bought the Ikea furniture before? You know, and the instructions, are, they're supposed to be like super simple. And most of the time they are, right? They look like this, right? That's the first page where you're just like, all the parts are there. This is super easy. But most of us are the dude on the bottom left for most of the time, Right? We're ready to call Ikea, but there's no number. You know, we're just like, I got an Allen key. What am I supposed to do here? I don't know. You know, put this thing together. And that's what it can seem like with a message like this. But there's one aspect of the story that we cannot pass by. The paralytic needed healing. He was weak and he was desperate. But listen, an aspect of the story that we've got to remember is that the paralytic actually came with others. The paralytic was actually carried by others. Now, I don't know if these were four friends, if these were four neighbors, or if he just yelled at four guys and they had pity on him, but it was four people that carried him to Jesus. When we come to Christ... Now, it's, this doesn't happen in every healing story, but when we come to Jesus, and one of the things that we want to build into the, into the vision and into the culture of Citizens Church is that we come to Christ in our weakness. We don't come to Christ because we've got it all together. We don't invite people to Christ because, hey, my family is like perfect and I want you to be a Christian because, so you can be like us. No, the invitation is to say, I want you to come to Jesus because I found him in my weakness. And in that moment, it wasn't even me that did it on my own. I had others who carried me to him. And so we want a culture here of Christians who carry each other to the one who is strong. To Jesus who has all the strength to heal anything in our lives. For his glory and for his name. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for this beautiful vision of the healing of Jesus. The healing of this paralytic, sorry, and of the work of Jesus. And thank you, Father, for the example and the stories that we have that were written down for our benefit. And we pray, Lord, that you would use those to form us and to help us to put our trust in you. And Lord, would we do it together as a church in humility. In Jesus' name, amen.